effectively and see the will of God come to pass. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's start in, in Mark chapter 9 this morning. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus made a statement in verse, 20, uh, verse 23. He's talking to a, a man who has brought his son to Jesus for healing, deliverance. When he came to where Jesus' disciples were, Jesus wasn't there. The Bible tells us that just prior to this occurrence, the mountain of transfiguration event took place. And so Jesus wasn't with the disciples when the father brought them to his son. And the disciples tried. Well, let's just back up. Let's just read it and, instead of me trying to say it. Let's start in verse 14. It says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And whithersoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. I want you to notice, folks, it says they could not. That implies that they tried and failed. The only way we'd know that they couldn't do it is if they attempted it. So they couldn't do it, and then Jesus answered him. Notice the verse uh, in verse 19, it says, Jesus answered him. It does not say that Jesus turned around and said to the disciples, Jesus answered him. He's talking to the Father. And said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now, folks, uh, without going into great detail about this, we're not going to read the, the whole story of this, the aftermath of the story. But we will refer to it. It says after this event took place, the disciples came to him and said, Why couldn't we do it? Which tells us they were accustomed to doing it. If they had never been able to deliver people or heal the sick prior to that point in time, they wouldn't have asked him anything about why they couldn't. They might have said something like, well, here's another case where it didn't work. But when they come to Jesus and ask him, why couldn't they do it? Jesus answers, because of your unbelief. Then he makes a statement about uh, prayer and fasting. This kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. But the disciples are not the ones under question here. While Jesus is dealing with the Son and the Father is present, the disciples' unbelief is not addressed, but the Father's is. So Jesus answered in the Father and said, O faithless generation, that means a generation or a people without faith, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him to him, brought the Son to Jesus, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit that was in the, the boy tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? How long has he been this way? And the father said, since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Now, folks, he's talking to a man that has experienced an impossible, is in the middle of an impossible situation. The father tries to turn it on Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. Jesus won't have any part of that. Now, folks, if these are types and examples for us, if these are principles that show us about the things of God, and, and if they're not, why are they recorded? That has to be the purpose for this. Look at how much of the church world tries to turn it back over on God. Well, if God wants it, if this is the will of God, then it'll just happen. Jesus rejects that notion completely. 
Jesus says to the Father, if you can believe, it's not a matter of what I can do. It's not a question of my power. The question is, what are you willing to believe? The Father says, if you, if you can do anything, if your power is available or sufficient or, or enough to help in this situation, have compassion on us and do it. What I want you to see, one thing I want you to see at least about this, is that the compassion of the Lord is to provide faith for us to do the impossible. The compassion of the Lord is not what the modern day church looks for, for God to do it, do whatever we need, independent of any steps or ta- that we take, any position of faith that we take. Let's just put it over in God's hands and whatever he desires will happen. If it doesn't happen, that means it's not his will. Jesus, who was sent to the earth to reveal the Father to us, rejects that notion completely. He said, it's not a matter of what I can do. Now, why isn't it a matter of what he can do? Because God can do anything. All things are possible with God. But again, Jesus turns it right back to him. If you can believe. All things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into it. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead. Inasmuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. All things are possible to him that believes. Second Kings chapter 20 tells us the story of Hezekiah. Beginning in verse 1 it says, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Hezekiah is the king of Israel. And it said, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass before Isaiah was even gone out into the middle court, he hadn't even left the palace yet, that the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer and have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee, and on the third day thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee in the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake, And for my servant David's sake. Why was Isaiah sent to Hezekiah? He was sent with a message from God saying you're going to die. This sickness will overtake you and you will die. But was he sent to let Hezekiah know what was going to happen? Or was he sent to stir Hezekiah to take a position or an action of his own? That would alter the course of events. Hezekiah had every right. For the healing that he eventually received. In verse 1. When he's sick nigh unto death. He has a right. Because of the way that he has obeyed the Lord. He has a right. To healing in his body. And longer life. But if he doesn't take that position, if he doesn't claim it for himself, if he doesn't do something to take hold of it, to take possession of it, he's going to die. I wonder how many people in God's family die when they don't have to. I wonder how many of God's children here on the earth, through doing the same thing Hezekiah is doing, fail to take their position in Christ. And fail to appropriate what God has already provided for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
if, I, if Hezekiah does not take this position on his own, if he does not step up and take hold of something, and, and all he does, according to his prayer, all he does is say, remember, Lord, how I've walked before you in perfect, uh, in, in, perfect in my ways. I've done that which was acceptable in your sight. Now, why would he say that? Well, at the point in time that he does say that, he lays claim through his own actions, through his obedience to what God told him to do. And that obedience creates a position, a temporary position at least, of righteousness. He's literally turning his face to the wall saying, Lord, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. I've walked before you in, uh, uprightly. I've done that which was right in your sight. But if Hezekiah doesn't take the position, there's no help for him. It's not like Isaiah can do it for him. Isaiah reveals to him, this is what's going to happen under the present circumstances. You're not going to make it. But it stirred Hezekiah to change his position to receive the promises of God. Turn with me to, to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, please. The book of Hebrews is a fascinating book. It's not, the authorship of the book isn't claimed by anybody. But there's good historical evidence to identify that it's part of the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Now when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, it tells us very specifically the things that were taking place in the region of Galatia. Galatia is not a city, it's a, it's a region, it's a territory. And there were several cities, several churches in that region, that geographic region. And when letters would be sent or correspondence would be sent from the Lord, these things usually passed around from city to city, church to church. Well, in the region of Galatia, the Jews, the religious Jews had come in after Paul had started the church and tried to tear things up, really. Because they said that faith in Jesus was, was good. That's, that's a great thing. We're glad you've accepted Jesus. But that doesn't mean you don't have to keep the law of Moses anymore. Well, Paul writes back to the Galatians and gets really strong with them. In chapter 3 of Galatians, uh, verse 1, he said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should turn away from the truth? That's King James, but it's really light because he's saying, you idiots, you stupid people, why would you go back to the law? The law didn't get you saved. So why turn your back on faith in Jesus, which has already brought results, miraculous results to you, to go back into the bondage of the law? Nobody can keep the law anyway. So why are you being talked into going back to the law that doesn't work? And forfeiting the thing that you've already found to make a change in your life. And as a result, again, historical evidence is pretty well settled. Not completely, but it, as I said, there's strong evidence. That Paul wrote a letter to the Gentile Christians that we know of as the letter to the Galatians. But he attached to it the letter to the Hebrews. And in this letter to the Hebrews... He identifies why Jesus is better. There's greater excellence in the new birth and the new covenant than the law of Moses would provide. Now, Paul says some things, and, and uh, maybe I ought to clarify some, uh, some of the ways that I say this. We usually attach the worst of intentions to the Jews when it comes to the Jew versus the Gentile issue. And there were certainly some in the religious hierarchy, the high priesthood or the, the priesthood itself, that were adamantly against Christianity. But most of the non-religious elite Jews didn't know what to believe. They had grown up being taught that to keep the law of Moses was paramount is the only thing that could bring them salvation, and even that just temporary salvation. They had to keep offering sacrifices. They had to keep the Day of Atonement year after year after year. But when Paul comes in and says these things 
these rituals, these sacrifices that we've been made, making and have made all of our lives and taught to make all of our lives. These things were fulfilled in Jesus. Well, you could well understand that that was good news, but it was almost too good to be true. And the, the Jews faced a dilemma that we don't often recognize, at least I don't pay much attention to. I should perhaps more than I do. But they're in a real dilemma because if they turn themselves away from the, the law to faith in Jesus alone, if they're wrong, if this teaching, if this doctrine is wrong, then it puts them on a, in a position where their eternity is not only in jeopardy, but the only thing that would wait for them is condemnation and an eternity in hell. So when Paul writes to the, to the Jews, when he writes this letter of the, uh, written to the Hebrews, he's trying to show them how Jesus has fulfilled all the things of the law and how this is good ground, solid ground, sure ground that they should follow. So in chapter 10, other places as well, but in chapter 10, Paul starts talking about a lot of things that are pertinent to the Jews. And like I said, he's, he's much harder on the Gentile Christians in Galatia than he is on the Hebrews, some of whom are the ones stirring up the trouble. Because he recognizes they don't know. They haven't come to the understanding. Even if they've been saved, they don't have the word like we do. They don't have the teaching or the doctrine. And there were very few people out there that really had good sound doctrine, what we would consider to be good sound doctrine. Paul ran into conflict after conflict, usually with the Jews, over things that were being taught to the Gentiles and commandments that were being imposed upon the Gentiles, all that were a part of the law. But Jesus fulfilled all that. So Paul is dealing with the church He's dealing with a generation where much of the church has got one foot in, the, in the faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone and the other foot into keeping the commandments. And there's a lot of the Jewish Christians and perhaps even a number of the Gentile Christians that were convinced that where faith in Jesus is good, you better keep the law just in case. So Paul talks a lot about the sacrifices. He talks a lot about how the blood of bulls and goats can't redeem us from sin. But that Jesus' blood, perfect blood, righteous blood, was sufficient to pay the price once and for all. But then Paul says some things to him as well. And some things that, that really don't make sense to us. Unless we realize the, the dilemma and the, the conflict that's going on. For example, he says... In verse 28, Hebrews 10, 28, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy of whom, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Why is he talking about rejecting Jesus to people that are born again? Because for the most part, this is the place where the Jews are. They're being pressured by the, the priesthood and the religious Jews. They're being pressured to keep the law as well. But Paul says rather than look at it at keeping the law as insurance, an insurance policy in case you're wrong, he says going back to the law is saying the blood of Jesus isn't enough. And it's grounds for losing your salvation. Well, there'd be no reason for him to write things like that unless that was the situation that people were facing. He says to them that they have need of patience. He talks to them about letting patience have its perfect work. He talks to them about not casting away their confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Now, folks, here again, I want you to think for a little bit. I know it's a new experience for some, but stay with us. Why in the world would the Bible, in any place, this book or any of the other letters written to the church. Why would the Bible talk about patience? 
Why would the Bible emphasize so much of the time the importance of, of patience? You remember, for example, in James chapter 1, James writes to the church, Christians, uh, Paul writes to the church, I'm sorry, James writes to, to the church, which is scattered abroad. He's writing primarily to Jewish Christians. And he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation there means test, trial, or affliction. Count it joy when you fall into afflictions. That's not our natural position, is it? We don't consider trouble and hardship to be something to rejoice about. But Paul says the reason why we should rejoice and count it all joy is because the trying of our faith worketh patience. Now, folks, what is the trial of faith? What is the trial of faith? What is it that tries your faith? Well, the Bible says faith is exhibited by word and deed. To believe in your heart and to say with your mouth is the operation of faith. So the devil is after your confession. He's not just after your belief. He's after your confession. He's trying to get you to say the wrong things, things that are contrary to the word. The Bible says that we're governed by our words, not our thoughts, not our desires, not our intentions. We're governed by our words. The ordinance of God, the oracle of God that was established from the beginning that God reveals to, to mankind in Numbers chapter 14. He says, say unto the people, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. We're governed by our words. And so the devil tries to stir up trouble, hardship, affliction, difficulty to change what we say. So he's trying to put the pressure on us, trying to delay the promise of God from becoming a reality in our lives so that we'll begin to speak against God's word, so that we'll begin to say things like, well, the Bible says it, but I guess it's not really true. Because he knows when we speak against the word, we get what we say too. So for the most part, the trying of our faith is time. The trial of faith is time. You conquer the idea of time, which is the basis of this physical realm. And you'll have no more trouble with the devil. Doesn't mean he won't attack. But it means you'll be settled in your heart to speak the word of deliverance, the word of victory, and not change that based on the circumstances. So that's the, the, the context of what Paul is talking about in this 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Now look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, he begins to tell us about how faith works and who worked it. Verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now remember what Jesus said. Jesus said to the Father of the Son in Mark chapter 9, all things are possible to him that believeth. If you can believe, all things are possible. All things are possible to him that believes. So when Paul starts talking about faith being the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, he's talking about how to bring the impossible into reality. For by it the elders obtained a good report. He's contrasting the evil report of Numbers chapter 13 where the ten spies came back, ten of the twelve spies came back and delivered an evil report unto the children of Israel saying we can't take the land saying the people in the land are too strong for us and we can't conquer them. They've got great cities and walls around those cities and we are nothing in their sight. God being on our side and God saying he's with us, his declaration that the land belongs to us means nothing. We're unable. Which is really an indictment against God. They're saying God's not big enough to bring us in. But here's the contrast. He says faith is what is necessary for us to, to obtain a good report. You remember Caleb and Joshua, the two of the 12 spies, came back saying the land is everything God said it is. 
Yeah, the cities are great and the walls are big around the cities, but God's on our side. We can do it. Notice verse 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The language is a little bit difficult for us. But the point is clear. In Paul's day, in the early generation, first generation of the church, there was no argument. There was no disagreement on how the world was made. Everybody understood that the Genesis account of creation was the way the church came, uh, the way the world came into existence. You remember Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 then goes on to say, but the earth was without form and void. Now there's only two possibilities. One is that God made the earth without form and void. And so he's going to tell us what he does about that. Or God made the earth in some manner other than without form and void. And something happened on the earth to cause it to change. Isaiah 45 verse 17 I believe it is. God says specifically I created not the earth in vain. King James says in vain. It's the same phrase. It's the same Hebrew phrase. As without form and void. So God literally says through Isaiah's prophecy, I didn't create the earth without form and void. Well, then that means something had to cause it to be without form and void if that's not the way God created it to be. Well, it's possible. We don't know for sure. But it makes sense that that change could have taken place when Satan was cast out of heaven into the earth. The Bible has some things to say, not a lot of things, but some things to say about the destruction that Satan brought upon God's creation that caused it to become without form and void. But nevertheless, the Bible says, and the earth was or became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now this word in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. This word framed is interesting. It's mostly translated to perfect or to complete. But the original meaning, the, the, uh, the most prominent meaning of this word framed is the word repair. So when it says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed, it's saying we know that through the generation, the Genesis account of creation, we know that the earth was repaired by the word of God. Well, we know what happened in, in the creation account. God spent six days creating everything, and everything he created, he created by his words. At the end of the sixth day, he looked at it, and he said, this was very good. That's God speak for perfect. So by the word of God, the earth was repaired or restored to a condition of perfectness, of being perfect. Folks, what, the word, what God is trying to get across to us is that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you're facing, the word of God will repair it to a perfect condition. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed or repaired by the word of God. Then he goes on to, to tell us what that means. Paul says, so that the things that were made were made of things that don't appear. In other words, he's saying the invisible is stronger than the visible. The invisible realm is stronger than the seen realm. Because the invisible realm, the words of God that come from the unseen realm, created everything that we can see and feel. The word of God, the unseen word of God, the things from the unseen realm that God provided for us, meaning his word, created everything that we can see and feel. It created this dimension of time, which is what the physical realm is. It's the realm of time. The Bible says there's no time in heaven. This is the realm of time. Now with Paul having already talked about the sacrifices, notice the first example of faith that he uses 
after establishing the fact that we're all on common ground where faith is concerned. Now, let me make this point before I keep going. Because there's no evolutionary theory to deal with. There's no, well, there might be some kind of Greek philosophy type ideas, but they're certainly considered fringe ideas or fringe theories. There's no acceptance, widespread or, other, or otherwise, acceptance of some evolutionary theory or some different means of creation other than what God gave us in Genesis chapter 1. So when Paul says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed or repaired by the word of God. So that the things that do appear were made by things that you can't see. When he's saying that, he's establishing common ground. He's saying to the Jews, many of the Jews that are trying to tear up the churches, he's saying, look, we're all on common ground where faith is concerned regarding the creation. He's trying to establish a precedent for why we should be on common ground in every area of faith. But he starts with the commonality of the ground that we have because we all believe the same thing about creation. So then he says, by faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Why does he go back to Cain and Abel? Because that's the first example we have of a counter position other than the word of God. So he says, by faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaks. There's a lot of stuff in this verse to consider. You know the story of Cain and Abel. God has instructed them that a sacrifice, a worthy sacrifice, had to, con had to contain the shedding of blood. But Cain was a farmer. Cain brought the best of the crops of his field. Cain is trying to bring his own works to God rather than what God demanded, and that was an animal sacrifice. And so his sacrifice wasn't accepted. Well, he got mad about that, and instead of changing him, he killed his brother. And God asked him, where's your brother? Afterwards. And Cain puts up some kind of defense saying, why should I know? Am I supposed to keep up with him? And the Lord speaks to Cain and says, his blood crieth unto me from the ground. Now, folks, we, that's a type of something that we experience. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 8 says, Here men that die receive tithes. So at the time that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, it had to be before 70 A.D. because that was the, the point in time that the temple was destroyed. So Hebrews had to be written before 70 A.D when the priesthood was still receiving tithes, the priesthood was still in operation in the temple in Jerusalem. So Paul says, here men that die receive tithes. He doesn't say it's wrong to pay tithes because Jesus fulfilled all that. He just says people that die here on the earth receive tithes, but there in the throne room of heaven at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he's alive. In other words, it's saying just as Cain's sacrifice, his gift unto God, according to God's instruction, the shedding of blood and the presentation of the animal, just as that was a, a testimony to Abel's obedience, it's saying our tithes are a testimony of Jesus being alive at the right hand of God. If you're a tither, there's a witness that will outlast even your time here on the earth for the benefit of your family and generations to come. So then he goes to another example of faith, one of the earliest ones we have. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. The Bible tells us about Enoch, how that he walked with God. And the only thing that it does tell us is just what it says here. Enoch was, was not. He disappeared from this physical realm because he pleased God. 
Brother Hagin used to say it this way. He said he was walking with God one day, and God said, it's closer to my house than it is yours. Just come go with me. <laughs> that may be just the way it happened too, folks. Kind of a neat way to think about it, didn't it? Now, folks, how impossible is that? That's super impossible. That's mega impossible. That's absolutely impossible. We get hung up on whether or not God can bring enough money in to pay our rent. The possibilities of faith are staggering. Well, that takes care of Enoch. So then Paul says something in verse 6 that we usually pull out of context. But in this context, that Enoch was not because he pleased God. It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, folks, think of all the things you could substitute for the word faith in this verse. Without love, it's impossible to please him. Doesn't say that. Without obedience, it's impossible to please him. Doesn't say that either, although faith and obedience are very closely connected. You really can't be in faith unless you are in obedience. But the, the Bible doesn't emphasize the, belief, uh, the obedience part. It, it emphasizes the faith. There's a lot of characteristics of God that are important for us to develop. But not one of them could be substituted here in this statement of truth. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Folks, if we can go so far as to say that the most important thing to God about us is to believe him. That's what counts and matters to him more than anything else. Doesn't mean other stuff's not important. Doesn't mean we shouldn't walk in obedience. We shouldn't walk in love. We shouldn't walk in all the other characteristics that we know of that the Bible identifies. But faith is the one that pleases him. And again, Paul is trying to identify this common ground of faith, trying to create a common ground of faith with Jewish believers that don't know what to believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For, because, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Folks, believing God is means believe that God is everything that he claims to be. It means to believe that God is all of the seven redemptive names that he identifies himself in the Old Testament. He's our shepherd. He's our righteousness. He's the God that's more than enough. He's our healer. He's our victory. And so forth. To come to God must requires that we believe that he is who he's declared himself to be. And that's just part of it. That's dealing with God's power. We must believe that God is the powerful God that he claims to be. And we must believe that he's our rewarder for diligently seeking him. Notice it's impossible to please God unless you believe that he rewards us. Now, many people that don't under, understand the, the operation of faith or the teaching of faith might take a position, and many have, have made these claims publicly in a, a variety of ways, that those of us that believe God to bless us and to bring blessing in our lives, many have claimed that that's an arrogance on our part trying to treat God like a cosmic slot machine to pour out blessings upon us. But folks, if this is inspired by the Holy Ghost, and, and I have to believe that it is, if this is inspired by the Holy Ghost, here's the Holy Ghost saying God requires of you that you believe that he re will reward you. 
He requires that of you. Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that preach faith with the wrong motives, just like there are a lot of people that preach salvation with the wrong motives, too. And this is not meant to excuse anyone's wrong motive or wrong reason for teaching blessing or prosperity or whatever. But you can't get away from the fact that God requires you to believe that he rewards you. When I think of the story of Hezekiah, who rightly had a, who had a right, legal right, according to God's justice, to be healed from the disease that would have taken his life and to live out the full length of his days. He had a reward that he wasn't taking advantage of and didn't take advantage of until Isaiah said, under the present circumstances, here's what's going to happen. You're going to die. That changed Hezekiah's position or created a desire in him to make that change. God didn't change it. Apparently, God couldn't have changed it on his own. And that certainly lines up with the fact that God has given man authority here on the earth. So without faith, it's impossible to please him. Because he that comes to God must believe that God is who he's declared himself to be. The all-powerful God. And he must believe that God will reward us for diligently seeking him. Verse 7. By faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Noah had no idea. Noah's generation had no idea what a flood was. So Noah starts building an ark by the direction of God. Now this ark was huge. It's not like he could build it in the garage and nobody would know it. This thing was huge. We don't know if man even knew what, what boats were like in those days. They came to Noah and said, what are you building? I'm building an ark. Why are you building an ark? Because there's going to be a flood. What's a flood? Well, it's going to be this great surge of water that's going to take everybody's lives except the people that are in my ark. Okay. And how do you know about this, Noah? God told me. I'm sure in the eyes of a lot of people, he seemed like the, the absolute nut. The fringe fanatic. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Not seen as yet. I like that phrase. Not seen as yet. Things that we might be believing for aren't yet seen, but they will be. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. In other words, righteousness in Noah's day was based on one simple thing. Do you believe that what God said about the flood is reality? And by that, by the actions that Noah took in obedience to what God had shown him, he became the heir of righteousness. How? Not by animal sacrifice, but by obeying what God said. By believing that it would be even as it was told him. By faith, Abraham. Notice how Paul is ticking off. He's still looking for common ground. He's still operating on the same premise. Just like we have common ground about believing how the world was created. We've got common ground about believing uh, everything that the scriptures tell us, the law and the prophets tell us about our forefathers. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Faith is never blind. Faith is always sure what it's acting on. It may not see the end result as yet, 
when the action is taken. But faith always knows what it will bring us into. And without that, there's no such thing as faith. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So Abraham obeyed, not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in a land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. He's identifying that Isaac and Jacob followed the path of faith that Abraham began. Isaac and Jacob were certainly the heirs with him of the same promise, for he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He set his affection on things above, as Colossians 3, 1 tells us. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above and not beneath. Verse 11, through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Folks, I want you to understand something. There was one thing, one event, one occurrence that changed everything about Sarah. Sarah was 90 years old, too old to bear children. But one thing changed that enabled her to receive strength. In other words, that transformed her body so that she could again have children. She judged him faithful who had promised. Notice it's not about the promise. It's about what she did concerning the promise. In other words, she had to consider the promise and the effect that it would have on her as an individual. This is like Jesus asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? And then after giving them the answer, he said, who do you say I am? That's what Sarah did here. And that's what created or enabled Sarah to receive strength to have the child when she was past childbearing years. She judged him faithful who promised. You remember there were times where Jesus would ask people, do you believe I'm able to do this? He required of them an answer. Why did he do that? Was he trying to trip them up? Was he trying to, to sow seeds of doubt? Well, certainly not. What he's doing is the same thing that the Bible tells us that Sarah did to become one of the Hall of Fame of heroes of faith. You've got to take the things of God for yourself personally. You have to judge. And by that I mean you have to reason. You have to consider the promise of God and its reality to you. We can't get by with just saying, well, Brother Hagin was healed. So healing must belong to all of us. You've got to decide and determine whether healing belongs to you because of what the Bible says to you. What's an amazing thing to me, and I see it all the time, is that people will assimilate and absorb doubt into their lives because of some story they heard that somebody had some, the same sickness as them and they died or some other silly thing. They'll allow circumstances, historical events, occurrences to enter into their personal position with God. They'll say things like, well, if this dear saint of God asked for healing and didn't get it, then why should I suppose that I will? That's a statement that, de that declares that that individual has determined that God is unfaithful to his word. The devil doesn't care if you know what you're doing or not. As long as he can keep you in a position where you're speaking against God's word. And so often, it permeates parts of our Christian life through well-meaning people. There's a song. It's one of the newer songs. Um, Jesus, I want to be where you are. I don't know how the, the chorus goes, but it's something about Jesus. I just want to be where you are. Well, it sounds so wonderful, and the music is great, and all that kind of stuff. But, folks, the Bible says you've been raised and seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus already. So unless you're singing that song saying, Lord, I'm ready to die and I want to go to heaven. Then it can't be scriptural. But it's pretty. 
And that's enough for most Christians. Wouldn't it be nice if people that wrote songs really knew the word? But too often the people that write the songs are too busy with their creativity to learn the word to have a foundation for the song God would really want to be sung. But I digress. (laughs) Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Let me skip through the rest of this pretty quickly. I'm out of time. Therefore sprang there even of one, talking about Abraham, and him as good as dead, based on his age, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. In other words, Paul is trying to make the point. These are impossible things that happened because of faith. That's the faith that we're asking you to to put to trust in where Jesus is concerned. He's saying faith shouldn't be this great giant leap that you're pretending that it is. We've got these things in our history, in the history of the Jews, the forefathers of the Jews. They did things that were completely foreign to the way things should work or that we think things should work. And God came through every time because all things are possible to him that believe. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. In other words, they didn't receive all the promises of what God had told them, but having seen them afar off. He's talking about seeing the promise. He's talking about seeing with the eyes of faith, not physical eyes, not in the material realm. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things, there's your confession again, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country Verse 6, a spiritual place. Now they that desire a better country, that is a heavenly one, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Paul simply makes the statement or proves the point, makes the case for proving the point, that there are things that our forefathers, the forefathers of the Jews, saw and pursued that they never saw in the spirit that they never saw in the physical realm they saw them with the eye of faith and because they embraced them they took hold of them personally in other words because they were persuaded of them they believed it to be true no matter what they saw or felt around them therefore they spoke of the promises of god and not the things around us. That's the kind of faith, and only that kind of faith, that pleases God. God wants one paramount thing in your life and in mine, and that is for us to trust that what he said is true. We want to trust him, we want to see results as quickly as possible, if not immediately, as certainly as quickly as possible. But understand this. The trying of your faith, which worketh patience, the Bible says is more precious than gold. The longer something takes and the effect of that delay, if it is to make you more and more persuaded as you go, More persuaded, not less persuaded. Not I was persuaded of these things for the first month or two, but after that I began wondering, well, maybe God's not in this after all. Under those conditions, and it's not every situation, 
but under those conditions, the delay is a strengthening agent to your faith if you focus only on, on the promise of God and not the circumstances around you. All things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to them that believe. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, righteous Father, whose words are always true. Father, you are the great I am. You're not the great I was, but you are the great I am to us. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It's impossible for you to lie. You are not a man that you should repent or change. In fact, there is no variableness in you, neither shadow of turning. We trust in you. We trust in your word. For healing power to work in our bodies. We trust in your word for finances and provisions. To come into our hands. We trust in you for the peace of God to keep us. No matter what we face. We trust in you father. We believe and are fully persuaded that you'll never let us down. Therefore, we will not be weary in well-doing. We will continue to believe. We will continue to speak. We having the same spirit of faith that created the worlds, we therefore believe and also speak and declare your word to be true. Father, what an honor it is to believe, no matter what things look like, or not, or, and no matter how things appear. It's an honor to stand in faith and trust you. For what man may consider to be impossible, but for you is just the fulfillment of your word. We love you, Father. And because we believe your word, we say what you said. All things are possible unto us because we believe. Even as Paul said, we believe that it shall be even as it was told us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. I'm going to have you say a couple of things with me. Say this, all things are possible to them that believe. I believe. Therefore, all things are possible unto me. No matter what it looks like, no matter what anybody says, no matter how I feel, all things are possible unto me. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You remember what pushed Abraham over the edge? After God had told him that this time next year you'd have the son of promise. He appeared unto Abraham one more time. I say it pushed Abraham over the edge. Really it pushed Sarah over the edge. It brought her to the place where she judged God to be faithful. There was one question that the Lord asked. 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, according to Hebrews 11, the answer to that question for Sarah, it does need to be faithful. Well, what about for you? Is anything too hard for the Lord? He's the same as he always was. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight for Having School.